0: Well, it's been a while since we've been in John, so I just want to remind you that John gives us the purpose for writing his gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, although Jesus did many signs, John only recorded certain ones for us, and it was a demonstration of who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God. So, tonight, I'm going to live a little dangerously, I'm going to try to do a PowerPoint today, maybe, I don't know, maybe not, oh, there it is, all right, it's my first time doing this, so bear with me. Um. I thought by review it might be good to just review where Jesus has been in his travels and his ministries. We catch up to speed in chapter six, and so in chapter two, the first sign that Jesus or the first sign that John records is in Cana of Galilee. And you might be able to see that in the north part of the map. Um, it's it's circled and it's written in bigger lettering there to the side. So Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That was chapter two. Then by the end of chapter 2, Jesus has gone south all the way down to Jerusalem where he's celebrating the Passover feast and he cleanses the temple. That travel between Cana and Jerusalem is about 80 miles. And Jesus is going to make that trip many times. So chapter 3, we have Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus. Chapter 4, Jesus is headed back to Galilee in the north. And on his way, he stops in Samaria and has a conversation with a woman at the well. And by the end of chapter 4, Jesus is back in Cana of Galilee, all the way up to the north there again, where he performs the second sign that John records, and that is he heals the official's son. And the amazing thing about that one is the official comes to Jesus in Cana, but the son is in Capernaum, which is that other town in the north there that circled. The the son wasn't even in the same location as Jesus, and Jesus healed him. Then in chapter 5, Jesus is back in Jerusalem, all the way back down south again in Jerusalem. And there we see the third sign as Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda and um, gets gets a strong response there because he healed on the Sabbath, and he defended his healing by making himself equal with God. So then, as we come into chapter 6 tonight, he's all the way back up in the north again. He's getting ready to cross over the Sea of Galilee, and that's where our event takes place tonight. Now, the reason I, I, I mention this is that you can see that Jesus is traveling all over, up and down in Israel. And as he's traveling, he's, he's teaching, he's healing, but John's only recording some of those. So I want to draw that out, that as we enter chapter 6, don't think that Jesus has only done three miracles up until now. And the other the other thing I, I thought would be interesting is in chapter 6, as we start our text tonight, um, John tells us that it's the time of the Passover feast, which means that a whole year has passed since the Passover in chapter 2. And in that span of a year, Jesus has only performed two signs that John records. Okay, so it's been a whole year since chapter 2, and I'm sure a lot more has happened than what John has recorded. And the reason I bring even that up to us is that as we enter into chapter 6, we're going to see that a large crowd is following Jesus. This is, I think, the first time that we really see it to this degree in John's gospel, but They see that he's been healing everywhere he goes, and a crowd is following him around. And that's kind of the backdrop now as we enter into chapter 6, and we're going to start with verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So in these verses, these four verses, John is setting up for us the event that's going to happen in these first 15 verses. Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which from a Jewish perspective would have meant going from the western side over to the eastern side. He's now in an area that's more desolate, more remote. He's up in a mountain. And we know from the other Gospels that Jesus was getting away, although John doesn't tell us that. In verse 2, we see that a large crowd is following Jesus because they see the signs that he's doing on the sick. And like I mentioned, Jesus has only done three signs that John has recorded up to this point, but I'm sure there were many, many more. And in verse 3, Jesus goes to the mountain and sits down with his disciples. So John does not give us a lot of details as he sets this up. He doesn't explain why they're sitting down. He doesn't explain why they got away. He just tells that they went across the sea and they sat down. And then in verse 4, we find that this is at the time of the Passover feast. And so, as I mentioned before, a whole year has passed since chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple But the Passover is not just an indicator of the time of year that this took place as far as the time on the calendar. The the Passover also conveys all of the emotions that the Jewish people would have been feeling at this time of year. As they're experiencing a celebration of God delivering them from slavery in Egypt and bringing them out to become their own nation in their own land with their own laws, their own leaders, their own place of worship. And while uh, the Passover was looking back in the past when Jesus had done that for the Jews at this time, it also would be looking for someone to deliver them in the present in that same way. So Carson says, quote, The Passover feast was a rallying point for intense nationalistic zeal, end of quote. All of the Jewish people would have been looking forward to a time when God would once again deliver them from their oppressors. The other thing that's interesting as John sets this up in his gospel is it seems that he is intentionally making a comparison between Jesus and Moses. So I'm going to kind of draw out some of those elements, but as we go through the text, maybe you'll pick up on some more. So some of the comparisons are crossing over the sea, Jesus being up on a mountain, People hungry in the wilderness, bread from heaven, and, there, and there's going to be more, all right? But just, just to kind of get that on your radar as we go through the passage that John seems to be making a particular point in comparing Jesus and Moses. So let's go to the next section now, verses 5 through 9, and here we see the conflict or the problem, and it's, it's summed up by this. Where are we going to buy bread for all these people? So let's, let's go ahead and work our way through the text in, in verse 5. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So as this problem is presented, there's a large crowd coming up to Jesus, and Jesus presents his disciples with this opportunity. Where are we going to buy bread for these people? Now, there are a lot of details that John leaves out compared to the other gospels. So there's probably a lot of things in this story that you already know in your mind. But it's worth noting, I think, some of the things that John leaves out so that we can turn and focus on what John actually says about the event. So, for example, John doesn't mention that Jesus spent all day healing and teaching. He doesn't... He doesn't mention that Jesus has compassion on the multitude. He doesn't mention the lateness of the hour. He doesn't mention that the disciples had requested Jesus to send the crowds away. Jesus, in John's gospel, he's getting right to it because, I mean, he has a plan. And so from John's perspective, as Jesus sees this crowd coming, he just hits it head on with his disciples. Where are we going to buy bread for these people? There are some there's there's a similarity in wording there in verse 5 where Jesus is lifting up his eyes and seeing the crowd coming and and you might remember that terminology from chapter 4 I think it's verse 35 where Jesus is talking to his disciples he's he's had this conversation with the Samaritan woman and and they don't understand why he's not eating they they think maybe somebody gave him bread that they don't know about and and Jesus is t- saying, Hey, look, lift up your eyes. Look, the, white, the fields are white unto harvest. So in chapter 4, Jesus tells his disciples to lift up their eyes, and presumably there's this large crowd of Samaritan people coming toward them. Whereas here in chapter 6, Jesus is the one lifting up his eyes, and he is seeing the crowd coming to him, and he's going to do something about it. Now, Jesus addresses his question directly to Philip, and it's interesting that I don't, you know, he's not expecting Philip really to come up with an answer. He's not expecting Philip to solve this problem, to buy bread for all these people. It's a test. John tells us explicitly in his gospel that this question is a test. It doesn't mean that Philip is going to have the right answer or be able to answer it. So, Jesus is testing Philip. He's going to make a point here to his disciples. But look at Philip's response in verse 7. Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So what's the answer to the question, where are we going to buy bread to feed these people? Philip is basically saying, we can't. We can't, Jesus. And and to put it kind of in... American dollars, $35,000 of bread would not be enough for everyone to have a little. Not to mention they don't have $35,000 or to mention the fact that where in this wilderness would you buy that much bread? But even, even with all of those hypotheticals, it wouldn't be enough for everyone to have a little. So the answer to Jesus is we can't buy bread for all these people. But then Andrew offers his perspective. Andrew, he recognizes what they do have. So look at look at verse 9. Andrew says, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So even even Andrew, okay, we've got a little bit of food here, but this is one boy's lunch. And What's that for so many? It's not a drop in the bucket. Like, you thought your $35,000 worth of bread wasn't enough for everybody to have a little? Try dividing up one boy's lunch for 5,000 men, as we're going to find out in just a little bit, that this crowd numbered 5,000 men. So again, looking at the resources they do have, woefully insufficient, not even close to meeting the need. So what's the resolution to this problem? Well, we see that in verses 10 through 13, as Jesus miraculously provides bread. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So while there was no human solution to providing food for this crowd in the wilderness... Jesus knew exactly what to do, and he was more than capable of doing it. Remember, he had this planned out from the beginning. He knew what he was going to do. So Jesus has the crowd sit down. We find here now it's a crowd of 5,000 men. Jesus gives thanks. He distributes the bread and the fish to those who are seated. And John really draws out the point that only Jesus could provide the food for the people. So John doesn't even record it as, you know, Jesus passed it out to his disciples and his disciples passed out to the crowd. In John's point of view here, he's, he's portraying Jesus as the provider of the bread and the fish. He's distributing. John also in this gospel account, he's emphasizing the lavishness of food. Did you see all those multiple descriptions of how much there was? He talks about the people ate as much as they wanted. They ate their fill, and there were leftovers. More food was left over, 12 baskets full, than what Jesus started with. And everyone was satisfied. See how John's repeating over and over and over the abundance of food? He's really making a point of this, how lavishly Jesus has provided them with this food. So that they end up with more food than they started with. And yet all 5,000 men have it eaten and are filled and are satisfied. Jesus has truly done a miracle. A miracle that, cannot, that no human could possibly do. Only Jesus. Now all four gospels record this account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And all four gospel accounts also mention the 12 baskets left over. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of, there are a lot of thoughts on what's the significance of having 12 baskets left over. And I don't remember what Pastor Brent said as he was going through Mark's account. I'm sure it was really good. I probably should have gone back and listened to that. But as I was looking at the different options, like what is, this, what is this showing that there were 12 baskets left over? I, I really like Edward Klink's suggestion. He says, quote, In light of the disciples' mild rebuke of Jesus for his initial question, when he asked them, Where are we gonna buy bre- why are we going to buy bread for these people? So in light of that mild rebuke, there remains for each disbelieving disciple their own basket of leftovers to carry. So you can imagine each disciple walking down the mountain with his own basket of food, just as a reminder of Jesus feeding all these people, everybody being full, and I have in my hands more than we started with. Well, verses 14 and 15, we find the conclusion to this event and and how we are to understand it. Verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done. So here, John is clearly identifying this as one of the signs that he's recording. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the people saw the sign. They recognized what it pointed to. Jesus is the prophet Moses spoke about. So I want to turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 18, and let's look at what Moses said about that prophet who was to come. Deuteronomy chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 15 through 18. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. This is Moses speaking to the people. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not again hear the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Does that sound like anything we've been learning about Jesus in the Gospel of John? Someone who is going to speak the words of God To the people. And they better listen because there's going to be consequences if they don't listen. So let's turn back to John chapter 6. The people recognize Jesus as the prophet Moses spoke about. Now, there's no doubt that Jesus' provision of so much bread to so many people in the wilderness would have prompted some of them to think of Moses' role in providing manna. In fact, there's going to be statements to that effect when we get to the next section, whenever that is, uh, verses 22 through 71, where we have the bread of life discourse. So there's no question that some of the people that have witnessed this miracle are connecting what Jesus has done to Moses providing manna in the wilderness. But while the people are right in recognizing who Jesus is, this prophet to come, they misunderstand the significance of what this means. So Carson says, Their attention was focused on food and victory, not on the divine self-disclosure mediated through the incarnate Son, not on the Son as the bread of life, not on a realistic assessment of their own need, end of quote. So Jesus withdraws from them. He perceives that they want to take him by force and make him king, so he withdraws to the mountain again by himself. to think again of the context of this event. During the Passover feast, Moses had led the people out of slavery in Egypt. Surely, The prophet, like Moses, would help them escape servitude to Rome. And a force of 5,000 men was certainly a group to be reckoned with, with Jesus as their leader. But Jesus had not come to overthrow Rome. He had come as the bread of life. He had come to give his life. And he had come to offer eternal life to whoever would believe in him. So Jesus withdraws before we, before I close tonight, I'm going to go through the next event, verses 16 through 21. But first, I want to stop here and draw a couple applications that come to mind for me as we think through Jesus feeding the 5,000. And, and the first, first point of application I'd like to make, re, make relates to Jesus' question to the disciples, namely to, to Philip. And that is that there's a sense where God sometimes asks more of us than what we can we have the resources for that what we can answer but God has a purpose in that. So <clears throat> I'd say it this way. When we don't have the answers, the resources or the strength, it is never too big a problem for Jesus. So we trust him. I think of 2 Corinthians 12:9 where Jesus told Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responded to Jesus by saying, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The disciples did not have the answers to Jesus' question. And we don't always have the answers to the situations we find ourselves in. But we can trust Jesus because he's bigger than any problem we face. And the second point of application I would take from verses 14 and 15 and is the idea that God works for his purposes, not ours. Jesus came not to do the will of the people, but to do the will of God. Jesus is not a genie in a bottle to fulfill our wishes. He is the sovereign Lord who will accomplish his plan. We cannot manipulate God to do our bidding. We must submit to him and trust him. So as I think through scriptures like Isaiah, where we find that God's ways are far above our ways, and his ways are not our ways, and our ways are not his ways, we need to submit to God's plan and trust that it's the right plan. Here, here in, in verses 14 and 15, Jesus withdrew because the people wanted they wanted to force Jesus to do something that he hadn't come to do. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we know that Jesus can fix it, so we've got the answer of how he should fix it, right? But we need to trust God's plan and understand that he's going to accomplish his plan. The second event that I want to cover tonight is verses 16 through 21. It's where Jesus walks on the water. And let's start with verses 16 and 17. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So the setting is, of course, Jesus is still up on the mountain by himself. And as evening came... The disciples went down off the mountain. They went down to the sea. They got into a boat, and they're getting right, They're crossing over to Capernaum. And John makes the, has this sentence at the end of verse seventeen that is just so interesting. I think he says it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So I can think of at least like three ways to take that sentence because the way John is playing with those words. And it's just an astounding verse. You know, there's with all of the back and forth in the Gospel of John between darkness and light. And it's dark because Jesus isn't there. Um, Not saying that's where it's going. It's just, it's interesting how John frames these words. Or is it just something simple like, you know... Jesus is going up to the mountain, and he tells his disciples, hey, if I'm not back by 10 o'clock or 8 o'clock or whatever, you guys just go on down, you get in the boat, you go on over to Capernaum, I'll just meet you later. And so that's the sense where it's dark, but Jesus had not yet come to them. He's going to join them later. Or I think the way we probably most likely take this, because we know the story and we know what's happening, is he just simply giving a hint that Jesus is coming. Right in the middle of this boat trip, Jesus is going to come. Jesus had not yet come. It's it's just interesting how John sets this up. Well, we have a problem developing in verses 18 and 19. It's the storm. So let's look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. So as they are crossing the sea, is approximately five miles across the sea to Capernaum. And things change while they're on the water. A strong wind starts blowing. And the sea starts raging, as we sang about. And it's pretty intense. It's dark out. They're in the middle of this sea miles from land I guess we could say and it's really difficult going now John doesn't completely draw this out the way some of the other gospels do but John does mention that they're rowing they're rowing across the sea because they're fighting against the wind they don't have the wind to push them across they're just they're rowing and they've made it 3 or 4 miles but it's difficult and then They see Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they're frightened. Again, John doesn't tell us that they didn't recognize it was Jesus. We see that in other Gospels. John just records that they see Jesus coming, and they're frightened. Well, look how it resolves in verse 20 and 21. But Jesus said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So in verse 20, as Jesus identifies himself to the disciples, I spent a lot of time wrestling with what Jesus was saying when he said, It is I. Because this statement could either just be a simple statement, It is I, who would identify himself as Jesus, or it could be, The divine formula for the name of God, I am. Is Jesus identifying himself as I am? Like he did to Moses, the burning bush in Exodus 3. Is Jesus just identifying himself to his disciples so they know it's him? Or is he declaring himself to be God? So I wrestled with this a lot. And... The best solution I could come up with is kind of a two-fold solution. So the first part of it is based on the disciples' response. I think Jesus was giving a simple declaration, identifying himself. Because the disciples were very glad to find out that this one walking on the sea was Jesus. They were frightened when they saw him coming. And they are glad to find out it's Jesus. And they immediately receive him into the boat. And it seems their fear is gone. So in my mind, if this would have been a burning bush type experience where Jesus is identifying himself as the I am, I think the disciples' response would have been fear and awe of their great God like we see in other places where people encounter the presence of God more than just how gladly they received him. So I think for the disciples, they... They took, it was just a simple declaration, and they were just so happy. That, hey, that's Jesus. It's so great to have him here with us right now. But then, on the other hand, John is often intentionally ambiguous, where we don't know if he wants us to take it as option A or option B or both. Things like, um, you know, John 3. Does John tell Nicodemus he must be born again? Does he tell him you must be born from above? Does he mean both? All these kinds of things we wrestle with in the Gospel of John because that's just the way John writes. And so, knowing how John writes, John is writing this account approximately 50 years after the event took place. And John may be intentionally wording it this way to make his readers think of the sacred name for God. After all, John's point in writing his gospel, is that we would believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So I think it's possible maybe, maybe John is doing something there with this. And if you want to explore this further, I'm not going to do it tonight for sake of time, but the same term is used in John chapter 4, verse 26, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. And he tells them, I am. Okay, so this phrase is used other places in the Gospel of John. I'll let you look at that and maybe you can wrestle through it some on your own. But I want to talk for just a moment about Jesus walking on the sea. Jesus demonstrates his power over the sea by walking on the water to the disciples. And because we know how far the disciples have come, he has walked a distance of three to four miles on a raging sea with the strong wind. The waves, the darkness. And while the disciples seem to be greatly affected by that, they've been rowing and rowing and rowing. It seems like Jesus almost effortlessly approaches the boat and is rapidly gaining on them. That's just the way it seems to be appearing in this gospel account. And in the scriptures, the sea often stands for chaos and disorder with lots of references where it is God who controls the water, who controls the sea, and who stills it. So even just in a quick survey, there are a couple other mentions of where you see God interacting with water. And so um, just to kind of show the Trinity's involvement in this, there's, in Genesis 1, you have the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters at the time of creation. Or in Job chapter 9, verse 8, when Job is talking about how great God is, he says that God alone is the one who can walk on the waves of the sea. God alone can tread on the waves of the sea. So Jesus walking on the water seems to be something that is a prerogative of God. It's pointing in that direction. And while John doesn't record for us the storm stopping as Jesus gets in the boat, John does seem to portray another miracle at the end of this account. As if, if you take the text at face value, it seems that after hours and hours of rowing to get across this sea, as soon as Jesus gets in the boat, immediately they're at land. So they've worked and worked and worked. Jesus gets in the boat, they're at land. So it seems like there's even a second miracle here that jesus performs that would give something for his disciples to think about so what what application can we draw from this account of jesus walking on the water Well, i think the thing that we can learn from this is that when jesus is with us we can face the storms of life and not be afraid nothing is too hard for jesus So we can trust him and be glad that he is with us. In fact, Jesus is going to promise his disciples before he goes back to heaven, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so while we have no promise that we will not encounter storms in life, storms that are overwhelming, storms beyond our strength, storms beyond our ability, we have the promise that Jesus is with us, and nothing is too hard for Jesus. So once again, it seems, in some ways, it seems kind of simple, but we need to trust Jesus. But boy, if we could just do that in life, like seven days a week, that's what we need to do, right? We need to trust Jesus. So may God help us to do that this week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We Just marvel at how Jesus reveals the Father to us. Your majesty, your glory, your power, your wisdom, your sovereignty. Father, we're so thankful that in in looking at these two accounts, the idea that we can trust Jesus with everything. Nothing is too hard for Jesus. Jesus. Father, would you give us that confidence that we don't have to have all the answers. So, Father, we're, we're undoubtedly going to face difficulty this week. We might come to the point of despair, of not knowing what to do. But, Father, would you help us to trust? Would you help us to trust? Because you are with us, and you will guide us through it. So thank you for that. We ask your help this week in Jesus' name.